Hey guys, welcome back to Revive School. For multiple months, we've been going through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And now we get this fresh wind of the, the new covenant, the New Testament. And we're talking about the book of Matthew. We only have two more chapters in our first book of Matthew. And now we're jumping into probably one of those chapters. You're kind of like, ah, uh, this is heavy. This is the, the Good Friday message. This is the crucifixion uh, message. This is <clears throat> Matthew 27. There's Now, here's the deal. 66 verses. If you haven't figured out, <clears throat> we try to pull out some of the section and say, let's go verse by verse because we don't have time to do verse by verse literally for the first six, all 66 verses. So in the first two verses of Matthew 27, Jesus is handed over to Pilate. Why? Because Judas got 30 pieces of silver because he betrayed Jesus, because he kissed Jesus and turned him over. Then it goes into verses 3 through 10. What happens to Judas? What happens as a result of Judas giving and collect, giving up Jesus? What does he do, Rich? Uh, he gives the money back and then goes hangs himself. And he even says in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He said, what's that to us? They said, see to it yourself. In other words, it seems like, I don't want to overlook this, that there is a heart that says, I've, I've messed up. And the problem is, he goes and kills himself because the weight is, is too much. It's just too much. And look in verse 6. Even the, even the chief priest, I think this is crazy to me. Even the chief priest, they take the silver and they say it's not lawful to put in the temple treasury since it's blood money. They even realize that this is, this is odd. This is weird. And so then what do they do? They take, the, they take this money and they bought a potter's field with a burial place for the foreigners. And then it says in verse 8, Therefore the field has been called blood field to this day. And this area still doesn't have anything on it. We get into verse 11 through 14. Jesus now stands before the governor. And here's the question. And I, I'd, I'd love to expand on this because our whole theme is king. But I do want to point this out. The governor asked Jesus, point blank, are you the king of the Jews? That's what the governor asked Jesus. And Jesus answered, you have said it. Is that a, is that a, a admission to saying, yes, that's I am, I, I am him or I am him <laughs> or not? What do you guys think? I think so. I think he said, by your own admission, it is uh, just as you said. Yeah, I would, I would agree. So just remember when Jesus was born and then the Magi went to look for, remember, the king of the Jews. And they were looking for the king of the Jews. And now here you have a government official asking Jesus point blank, are you the king of the Jews? So in Matthew, you have the very beginning, the king of the Jews. And at the end, you have the king of the Jews. From the birth all the way to the death, he's still labeled the king of the Jews. Scripture then continues on all the way even to verse 15. At, you know, at the festival, uh, the governor's custom was to, okay, we have, we have a prisoner. We're going to release one of them. Either have Jesus or Barabbas. And so the, the governor asks, which one do you want to release? And then what do they do? They shout, Barabbas, Barabbas. That's the one that they're going to release. In verse 21, it says they had answered Barabbas. And so verse 22, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Messiah? They answered and they shouted, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. In verse 24, very similar language of what Judas has even said at the very beginning of Matthew 27. And I'm going to start getting into a whole lot more in depth. I'm just painting the backdrop of where we're going. 
Verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, quote unquote, with this crowd, right? But that a riot was, riot was starting and said, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the cloud and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It's the exact conversation that Judas had with the religious. They both realized, Judas and Pilate, as strange as this sounds, God allowed both of those individuals to play a major, major part of the crucifixion. And, and here's the crazy thing is, Mary prepared Jesus by anointing his head and his feet. By being broken, she said, Jesus, I'm giving up everything. Judas says, I want everything that I can. And at that point, it's too late. Pilate is like, it's too late. We've gone too far. Okay, I'm innocent, but we'll just finish it up. It's so weird to me. It's like, we'll just keep finishing this. And so what do you know? Verse 25, all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. It's like they're begging for a curse. And then they released Barabbas to them. But after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. This is where I want to go today. In verse 27 of Matthew 27. Uh, the crucifixion, crucifixion process. Uh, I want to read this first before I go through scripture. What does that look like? Well, first of all, it's a form of punishment that has been passed down uh, to the Romans from the Persians and Phoenicians. I think sometimes you always just think, well, it's just only for Jesus and those right around him. No, this is their form of punishment. Okay. At the same time, Roman crucifixion. Okay. It was a lingering process. It was a slow torture while keeping the other prisoners, while, while keeping the prisoners alive. That was kind of their goal. They wanted it to be painful and slow. In fact, this is how graphic this was. MacArthur says some victims that were on the cross that were being crucified, they lingered so long that they were eaten alive by the birds of prey and wild beasts. So they're being crucified. They got, we'll get into all the description, but because they're still alive, the birds began to see flesh and they began to peck away at this body. Like that's how bad this process is. I, I, I can't even fathom that. In fact, some, most, most would say they hung on a cross, this crucifixion process, for days before those individuals would die of exhaustion, dehydration, uh, and then at some point even uh, suffocation. And this is what, to go back, Kevin, yeah, right here in verse 26, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. This is what he's saying, Jesus, this is what you're going to experience. At the same time, remember this, as he's up on the cross, the legs will not support the weight of a body. The diaphragm at some point is going to become constricted and your, your breathing becomes impossible. Then it continues on. Eventually, because they're so tired of waiting on the prisoners to die, eventually you just break their legs. Eventually you break your legs, break the legs to hasten death. But now here's the crazy thing is, and I, I'm already giving you all the story but they didn't break Jesus's legs. Why? Kevin, can you go to John 19, verse 31? I'm walking through this crucifixion process. The whole point of this is slow agony torture. And in John 19, verse 31, here's what you have. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. In other words, we wanted this death to be done, but we want it to be done a little bit faster because they can't do anything on Sabbath. So it was, a, it was a special day. They requested then that Pilate, okay, the religious go back to Pilate, hey, have all the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. We got to kind of just speed this process along. That's really what they're saying. Verse 32. 
So the soldiers, what happened? They came. Now we know that there was three crosses during the time of Jesus' death. One on each side. Jesus was in the middle. The soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. So fair statement, okay? You have, you have three crosses, right? Right? You break the legs here on this one. You break the legs here. And the point of breaking the legs again is what? Well, to be able to breathe when you're hanging on the cross, you have to push up yep. so you can take a breath. And so if you break your legs, you have no support. There's nothing to push up with. Great. Now go to verse 33. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. Why? Since they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. It's just important to note. Okay, now watch this. The nails through the wrists and the feet. Okay, the wrists and the feet through the instep or the Achilles tendon. Sometimes they might have just done one nail, okay, into both feet. Okay, they're cheap. I mean, they're putting it right away into both. And here's the process of, of putting the nails in the wrists and the, in the feet. Guess what? It's not fatal when you do that. It's just extremely painful. So when Pilate says, I'm handing him over to you to do crucifixion, to crucify him, like you have to think all of this, like, holy cow, this is not an easy process. Somebody shoots you in the head and you're done. This is a long, arduous, painful process. In fact, once you're up on the cross, ultimately, you know what it is? It's a sign of disgrace. Pilate is now implying, guess what? This is a sign. This, this is what it looks like. Kevin, can you go to Galatians 3? Verse 13, Galatians 3, verse 13. This is what's going to happen. We haven't even gone through the scriptures, but this is what's going to happen. Okay, this would prove the, dis the disgrace mentality is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, man, all of, doesn't this all flood back to the Pentateuch? All of the law that we're supposed to keep up with, guess what? Christ now has redeemed us from trying to live like that. How? Because he became a curse for us. And look, it was written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. So Jesus became the disgrace. He became the curse and he redeemed us from the curse of the law by literally being crucified. And so in one verse, when Pilate says, yes, crucify him, your mind should automatically be going to this whole process. Man, now think about this on the way to the crucifixion. Imagine trying to care after you've been flogged and beaten and whipped, and anything else, imagine now you have to maybe possibly carry up a, cr a cross by yourself up to 200 pounds. I mean, a box of nails, just an image, an ace, is 50 pounds. Imagine four of those, and you're carrying it on your back, and you can barely breathe because you've been beaten so bad. And so then that's where this picture comes into play. Kevin, if you would, I want you to go to the, the, to the scriptures here to keep this story going. It says in verse 32, now look what happens. It says, as they were going out, remember, they were told to crucify him. As they're going out, they found a Syrian man named Simon. They forced this man to carry his cross. Why? Because there's a real good chance Jesus didn't have the strength or the energy to carry his own cross. He was lucky they even walked. They'd beat him so much. I think what this says to me is that, can you go to Hebrews 4.15? 4, 4, what this says to me about Jesus is that it shows his humanity. He's not Superman and he's not like, oh yeah, I just got beaten, it didn't, it didn't impact him. His flesh was actually wounded. 
We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I actually think this weaknesses is even in physical pain. It's in our body, our aches, our woes, our headache, all this. But one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so I just think, okay, look, Jesus in his flesh, he can't carry on. So let's get this guy, Simon. He's going to carry this out. He's going to carry and articulate this thing out. It, and there's a, there's a couple ways to look at the stories in Mark as well. He's also the father, what we think. He is the father of Alexander and Rufus, as found in Mark 15. Uh, he became a Christian. So here you have Simon carrying the cross of Christ. Man, what a calling in your life, huh? You're carrying the cross that's going to kill your Messiah. Verse 33, it says this of Matthew 27, when they came to a place called Golgotha. Golgotha, if you don't know, it does mean, it says this in scripture, it means skull place, okay? Now we do know that the typical mentality is, is that the, the theological perspective is that it's going to be outside the city walls, okay? This is the mindset. Now Golgotha, this skull-shaped hill, uh, named because of a, a, the, the place of crucifixion, it doesn't mention that, it, uh, that it's on a hill, uh, but there's a question even in Jerusalem today. Which one is it? Is it the garden tomb or is it the church of the Holy Sepulcher? Is it the garden tomb that looks beautiful and actually looks like it could have uh, a skull? The Golgotha looks like from a distance, it looks like the cave is a skull where he could have been crucified. But at the same time, when you go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher, you're like, ah, this is it. Because they have so many candles and so many people own it. But the question is, is where does it fit outside of the city gates? Lots of conversations. We're not going to go specifically which one. I'd say go to both. And ask the Lord. <laughs> in verse 34, watch this. It says, now, after, okay, Jesus is in this process of being crucified. It says they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink. Okay, so now, just so you know, it was kind of like, um, like we just jumped a whole lot right here, right? We went from Simon carrying the cross to the next thing you know, they came to Golgotha, skull place. And then the next thing you know, they're giving him wine mixed with gall to drink. He's on the cross now. Okay, does that make sense? So now all of a sudden he's already up. He's in that position. And now they're giving him wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. There's all kinds of perspectives on how to look at what? Why did, why did Jesus not take this? Well, in Luke 23, verse 43, here's one thought. Okay, wine mixed with gall to drink. I'm indifferent on these. I just want to paint a picture because I thought this was a good learning, uh, a good lesson maybe to learn. In Luke 23, verse 43. What does Jesus do with one of the guys on, uh, uh, up on the cross? He ministers to one of the criminals, right? He ministers. I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. One of the reasons and perspectives that somebody said he, he decided not to partake in the wine, as crazy as it sounds, he wanted to be able to minister and have a clear mind. He didn't want to partake in any of the alcohol. It's a thought. Again, you can laugh at some of these, but I, I do think it's an interesting of maybe why he didn't do this. Now, in Proverbs 31, 6, here's another angle. So maybe he wanted a clear mind. I don't know. Proverbs 31, 6, maybe, okay, he wanted, you ready for this one? Maybe he just wanted to embrace, this is going to sound crazy, the pain. He didn't want anything to take away. Proverbs 31, 6, give beer to one who is dying and wine to one whose life is bitter. Maybe some of the arguments theologians would say is that he didn't take it to deaden the pain. I don't know. It's, it's a thought in verse seven that says, let him drink so that he can forget his poverty and remember his trouble no more. 
It's an interesting take on it. I can't tell you one way or the other, but either way, either way, either way, he said no. Can you go to uh, Psalm 69, 21, Kevin? Instead, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. It's crazy to me, you guys, how much is prophesied in the Old Testament about our coming king. Scripture continues on in verse 35. It says, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. It was customary to have the soldiers take the spoils of the dead of the dead prisoners. That was just kind of what they did. And so then they would cast lots, right, to divide the garments, to get his clothes from the prisoner. I don't even know why they'd want them. You would think that they would be bloody. You'd think they'd be nasty. I mean, they, they've just gone through death. And they had the nerve to try to get his clothes. So after the casting lots, look what it says in verse 36. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing. And so what they did is they put up a sign, right, above the cross, okay? And it just says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, when you take all of the signs together, Okay, when you put all the four Gospels, uh, what you're going to get ultimately. So when you take Matthew, Mark and John's perspective of this right here, when the sign is there, okay, this sign is actually not complete. When you combine, this is why I love the synoptic Gospels. When you combine this sign and put everybody's together, it will say this. This is the Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Right here, it doesn't say Nazareth. It says this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Ultimately, with Matthew, Mark, and John, you're going to see this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You know why I like that? It shows me, it shows me, in my opinion, the, the humanity and the deity of Christ. It's just a take of the completeness of the sign. Now, in verse 38, it says, And two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So the king of the Jews, I'll just write, just because of space, I'm just going to write King Jesus, if that's okay. King Jesus is going to be up here. On the right and on the left are these criminals. Now, this is actual prophecy, you guys, that Christ was going to be surrounded by these criminals. It says in Isaiah 53, 12, the one thing you're going to constantly see in the crucifixion in Matthew 27, it literally interweaves prophecy. It's, it's just nonstop. In Isaiah 53, 12, look, it says, therefore, okay, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he submitted himself to death. And there it is. And was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. And so he was counted among the rebels. He was between the criminals. And crazy enough, in verse 39 of Matthew 27, it says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads, saying in verse 40, the one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Remember, this is what he said. This was going to be a sign, right? He said in Matthew, was it 20, 24, 24, 25, 26, 27. Yeah, 24. One of the signs was going to be that the temple was going to be what? Destroyed. He says, I'm going to demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So everybody's mocking all of the words of Christ because at, at this point, he's dead. It hasn't been the three days yet. So it's funny to me that this is their argument. He just died. It hasn't been the three days. And so it's kind of like they're mocking him with his words, but they're already inaccurate. And even in their own, their mockery. 
And so in 41, what do you know? It's not just the people walking by. It's the chief priests, it's the scribes, the elders. They were mocking him. So now here you have criminals, you have passerbys, and now you have the religious. Everybody's mocking dead Jesus at this point. And I, just so you know, if you ever hear me say that again, the dead Jesus becomes alive. And so they're mocking him and saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. And so that you just hear this mockery. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. I don't buy that at all. That's like Judas saying, well, why did she waste all that money? We could have given it to the poor. Like there was not a, there was not one truth to what they're saying. But you see over and over they they know he's king or they're saying he's king, but they doesn't look like the king they're looking for. Yeah, this is not, this is not the king. You're absolutely right, Kevin. This is not the king that they're looking for. No, no king would be dead up on the cross if he promised us all these things. Great point. Uh, let's continue on and just wrap up this section if we could. It says, he's put his trust in God. Now let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. It's crazy. In verse 44, here you have the criminals. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. We do know, though, that even though the criminals taunted, one of them gave their life to him. One of them gets to be with Christ in paradise. And just so you see a big picture here in verses 45 through 56, that's when the death takes place. The death of Jesus Christ takes place. And then in verse 56, you have the burial. The burial that goes all the way through verses 61. And crazy enough, in verse 62 until the end, you're going to talk about how these guys are literally guarding the tomb because I think they're super afraid. I think they know in their heart, well, something is about to happen. Something is about to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so in Matthew 27, very rarely do I like to end a message on saying it just stops at the death. But in this case right here, it does. The resurrection hasn't happened until Matthew 28. And so in Matthew 27, we have this point where Christ at this point is dead and that's all they know. And so in that process, everybody's mocking him because, because <laughs> it's not happening yet. The crazy thing is, and I think this happens in mankind. I think this happens in the church. God gives us a word and yet we want to speed up the process and say, no, God, I need it right now. And God said, no, I told you, be patient in this process. You guys, when we walk by faith, you cannot see exactly uh, what, what it looks like, but you got to keep walking. And the religious were a great model for us. They had to have everything spelled out. But there's at least, I'm going to say, seven prophecies that I want to walk through, okay? <clears throat> now, first of all, one of the prophecies, okay, and John MacArthur does a great job spelling this out, is that God, Kevin, if you go to Psalm 22, verse 1, God will forsake Christ. You realize that. God will actually turn his back against his own son in the moment of agony. Okay, does that make sense? In a moment of agony, he is going to turn against his own son. So Psalm 22, verse 1. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> Christ clearly acknowledges that the Father God has actually forsaken him for a period of time. Now, Kevin, if you would go to Matthew 27, 46. What you're going to see, okay, is that you're going to see an Old Testament version, and then you're going to see the prophecy side of it as well in, in Matthew 27, 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. What does he say? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in Psalm 22, you have a prophecy that then becomes fulfilled with Christ in the time of crucifixion in Matthew 27. Okay, now another one. Christ is going to be scorned and ridiculed. So Kevin, if you go to Psalm 22, verse 7. So Christ will be scorned, okay, and 
ridiculed, scorned and ridiculed. And again, you're going to see the Old Testament version of this. And that's why I think this is so important for our Jewish friends to see what is the psalmist saying? And then how do we see it fulfilled? And it says, everybody who sees me mocks me, right? How many times did we talk about that? The passerbys, the religious, the criminals, they mock me, they sneer and they shake their heads. In verse eight, he relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he takes pleasure in him. Now, what's the fulfillment side of this? I mean, I think we read through it multiple times. So I'm just going to give you a reference. Matthew 27, 39 through 43. Okay. So God's going to fake, forsake Christ in an agony, a moment of agony in the crucifixion process. Christ is going to be scorned and ridiculed. And as you see, and I think it's really clear in Psalm 22, it all points to Matthew 27. Now, how about this one? Christ's hands and feet, they will be pierced. Kevin, if you go to Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me and they pierced my hands and my feet. Remember, three different stories, different angles on how to look at this. John 20, 25 and 27. John 20, 25 says, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands... Put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. What's that implying? Christ's hands received, hands and feet were both pierced. Verse 27, put your hand here and observe my hands. This is Jesus talking to Doubt of Thomas. Reach out and touch. I want you to realize the piercings. Okay, keep going here. Others, at some point, according to Psalm 22, 8, others are going to do what? They're going to gamble for Christ's clothes. I still, to this day, I don't understand that one. You'll gamble for Christ's clothes. I mean, it's his dead body's clothes. It's gross. It's bloody. But in Psalm 22, uh, 18, Psalm 22, verse 18, again, all of this, I just want to show you, this is one, one Psalm. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. So in the Psalm, Psalm 22, what do you have? It's pointing to what the soldiers did, which we've already talked about, right? In Matthew 27, 35 verse 36. So here you have four prophecies already that have been fulfilled just in one chapter. Number five, here what you see is, is that not one of Christ's uh, bones, and we talked about this with Drew, not one of Christ's bones will be broken. Right? They're, gonna, they, they're not broken. Why? Because they already declared he was dead. And that's in Psalm 34, 20, Kevin. Psalm 34:20. He protects all of his bones, not one of them is broken. And then we know in John 19, okay, John 19, 32 and 33 and 36. I'm saying this because I want to show, remember this, Christ says in Matthew 5, I didn't come to destroy or abolish, I came to fulfill all the scriptures that was talked about. And that's, my friends, is exactly what's happening right here in Matthew 27. Christ is literally becoming fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, just real quick because of our time here. In number six, Christ, and we read this, Christ will be betrayed by a friend. That's got to be, I know the pain is tough, but can you imagine being betrayed by your friend? Psalm 41, verse 9, which we already read. Psalm 41, verse 9, and then is fulfilled in John 13, 18. Okay, last and final one of this prophecy. Uh, Christ will be given, and this is where we spend some time. Christ will be given what? Do you remember this? He'll be given vinegar and gall. And that comes from Psalm 69, 
21, which is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 34. Why spend so much time? Because I want you to understand the importance of revived school is to point all of this points to the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it points to the Messiah. In the New Testament, it points to the Messiah. And what you see in Matthew 27 is literally an ongoing fulfillment, right? Of all that the Messiah, the King is going to suffer in order for us to be set free. There's a lot here on the prophecy side, but my prayer is and my hope is that we don't forget all that Christ went through just so you and I can have life. Because just so you know, we, we can't just stop here for a second. It doesn't end just in death. It doesn't end in the burial. Praise the Lord. He is risen. Christ has come back to life. And guess what? That's what we get to talk about tomorrow in Matthew 28. Thanks. Thanks. 